let me first introduce myself. Ken Delage, one of the pastors here. Great to see you if I haven't met you uh, before. Thank you for coming. Um, last week, we um, transformed our resource center out in the hallway and made it all about kids because last week there was a message uh, about children. And I just decided to leave it that way this week. So this week is still all about kids. We're probably going to bring some more uh, diversity to what we're, uh, uh, the, the resources we're, we're offering there uh, in the coming weeks. But I wanted to point out a book that didn't arrive last week in time for me to show it to you for that message. Um, and uh, we've got a few copies of it back there. So it's called The Case for Life. It is uh, the, the, the subtitle, Equipping Christians to Engage the Culture. Um, so it's just, it's a great book. I don't know that we've had a book quite like this in there um, that can just help you understand the, the medical, biblical, um, ethical case for life um, so that you can be, you know, when you're in a conversation with somebody, uh, you can be helping to point them to what God says about these things and just equipping yourself to know better what the Lord says about these things. So I'd recommend this book and because they're there, I recommend all the books. Uh, that are there. That's what that means, that they're there. Uh, Sean and I picked them specifically thinking that they would be a blessing to this church. So please do check those out. All right. So you might notice if you've been around Mercy Hill very much that we've got this strange word up on the screen called Corinthians. And you're like, what's up with that? I thought we were in Matthew. Don't worry, we are in Matthew, uh, but we're going to take a little aside this morning uh, and consider God's word from, uh, from another book. Um, I actually want to share something with you this morning that I was able to share this past weekend when we met with our care group leaders, a few others, their wives, uh, for the annual retreat that we get to do with them, which was a wonderful, wonderful time. Um, I shared this with them to encourage them to do what they have already been doing uh, so well in this church, which is serving, um, which is be, being a servant within the body of Christ. And I wanted to share it with you as well. Um, because, of course, friends, being called to serve is not the distinct calling of like the pastors or the care group leaders' wives or the care group leaders or the deacons or whomever. Like the call to serve one another is the calling of the saints. This is what we are called to together, um, every follower of Jesus. And I want you to know as I share this, um, I, I share this as a grateful pastor. Okay, um, I don't share this because, wow, our ministry teams really need more people. So how can I get in front? I know what I'll do. We'll do. That's not what's going on. All right. By the way, our ministry teams uh, they do need more people, but that's not what I'm talking about. I really do share this out of just a sense of gratitude. I look out at folks who are pouring out their lives in so many different ways, um, pouring out their lives at home caring for older parents or caring for young kids or doing both. I look out caring for babies. I look out on those who are, who are giving serious effort in their careers, not just for the paycheck, not for what man has to say, but as unto the Lord, seeking to serve. And I'm, I'm looking out on those who do that in the context of this local church as well. I'm so grateful uh, for all of you. Um, but I also am aware that we're not done yet, right? That the Lord hasn't finished the good work that he began in us. 
uh, that we're still called to be conformed to the image of Christ, and we've got a ways to go on that. So I hope this encourages you on the one hand and also stirs you up to love and good works on the other um, as we consider this. So you might have guessed we're going to be in 1 Corinthians 4. So open your Bibles there if you would. So my grandmother was of a different era, a different generation, uh, a different time. She was raised in the Great Depression, and the impact of that carried through her entire life. She was industrious and thrifty and hardworking and moving a million miles an hour from the time she woke up till the time she went to bed. Uh, she and my grandpa, they, they grew their own food as much as they could, big garden. They built their own house with their hands. She made the curtains to hang on the wall in the house. They made their own Christmas decorations. They made their own candles. She made the glassware that went on the table that they had. She sewed their clothing. Um, I can just remember her sitting at her sewing machine, just going at it, you know. Um, and she'd be making maybe a dress for my sister's little doll, or she'd be making a blouse for herself or for my sister. So here's how it would work. She'd run up to town, and she'd buy fabric, and she'd buy a pattern. And, and she would take that pattern, and, and, you know, it's like paper, right? And it te- but it tells you what to do. And, and you lay it out, and it tells you where to cut. Am I doing this right? Am I saying this right? Because I really don't know. But I think, that's what I think was happening in the sewing room, right? So, but I knew she had patterns, right? And so she cut, cut out this pattern, and then it would tell her how to sew it and whatever. And all of a sudden, from just a few pieces of paper emerged this garment. It was just beautiful and wonderful and obviously lovingly made. And that one pattern from the store, you, you, you know, homes would take it, would go into various homes throughout the country, right? And, and these shirts would be created, and they all were similar because they all followed the pattern, but they were all different because maybe this person used this kind of texture of fabric, and this one used another texture, and this one used that color, and this one used the other color. So there were differences, but there was a clear and identifiable pattern. This morning, we're going to be considering from 1 Corinthians chapter 4, a biblical pattern. And when I say pattern, I mean it in the same sense, that that is something which God has given, which is meant to be replicated, which is meant to be used in various churches at various times, in different cultures. The pattern's going to be distinct in different places, right? There's going to be different textures to it, different colors to it, different accents placed on this particular pattern in different cultures or different centuries or different churches, and yet the pattern remains. And yet it's identifiable as, ah, I know what that is. It's got an Asian flair to it, but I recognize the pattern. Oh, that's what it looks like in India, but I see the pattern, and that's what it looks like in Spotsylvania. But it's the same pattern. And this is a pattern of how we follow Christ. It's a pattern of, 
of how we live together as saints, of how we minister to one another as believers. Part of following Christ is, is doing so together. Part of following Him is loving each other. Right? These are the first and second greatest command. Love the Lord, love each other. Right? So we're, we're called to, to minister to one another, and there's a pattern to that that I want to introduce you to, encourage you by this morning. So let's look together at 1 Corinthians chapter 4. We'll be uh, reading verses 1 through 5. Follow along quietly as I, as I read. This is how one should regard us, as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. But with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself. For I'm not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. God's word. Okay, so we've been in Matthew. So let me catch you up with where we're at in 1 Corinthians so we understand what's going on here. Paul is writing to the church in Corinth um, and he's writing to them about how they view apostles, how they see those in ministry. And they see those in ministry as quite different than themselves. They have elevated those in ministry to a kind of royal status, a kind of William and Kate of the church. And everybody's just kind of, ooh, you know. There they are. And so, so if you were to look in chapter 1, for example, they're saying things like, I follow Paul. And others are saying, I follow Peter. And others are saying, I follow Apollos. And so they've got this kind of Christian celebrity culture that they've got going in the church. And, that, and they're thinking of Christian ministry in very secular terms, in very worldly terms. Now, Paul is writing in chapter 4 to correct their perspective on Christian ministry. Of course, he's writing most directly to correct their perspective on how they view apostles. But, this, but as he does so, he's going to give us a perspective on, on all who engage in Christian ministry, which I would say should be and is every believer. We are all engaged in Christian ministry. That is, in the ministry of Christ to one another in a variety of different ways and uh, with different gifts. Of course, the apostles, they had a unique you know, foundation-forming role for the church. right? So Paul's got to make sure that the church understands that. But the church that they founded, we are building. Did you ever think about that? Like They put the foundation in, and we're like up on the 46th floor of the skyscraper, working on the same building that they founded. And so we want to think rightly about what does it mean to be engaged in Christian ministry together. So this, this that he talks about is true of me, it's true of you, it's true of 
all of us. So when he says, this is how one should regard us in verse 1, this is how one should regard us. Us, the apostles, us, anyone ministering in the church, us, pastors and elders, us, the deacons in the church or the care group leaders, us, every believer. This is the pattern for ministry in the church of God. So three things we want to consider that we can see about this pattern that will replicate across cultures, across times, in your life, in your life, in your life. The first is the pattern we are servants of Christ. Servants of Christ. Verse 1, this is how one should regard us as servants of Christ. The first mark of the Christian laborer is not leadership. It's not status. It's not rank or title or position. The first mark of the Christian engaged in gospel ministry is servant. Servant of one another. Servant like assistant or helper or attendant. One who comes not with their own agenda, except so far as that their agenda is to serve others and help them with their agenda, help them with what, what they need and what's best for them. The Christian who would seek to be involved in ministry lays aside their own desires, their own pride, their own sense of position, and positions themselves to help others to help them take one step closer to Jesus, to take a little bit of the burden that they're bearing and and let them know, I'm carrying this with you. To pray for them, to put the other person first, to essentially look not only to your own interest, but to the interest of others. That's what a servant is doing. And so, friends, this is not so much about a particular activity as it is a mindset. The, the servant mind, it, it's, it's a mindset that a servant has. Where, who are servants in our society today? You know? I think uh, if, if we had lived 200 years ago in, in uh, Great Britain, we could have had some examples. of like They had, they had servants. You know? I think perhaps of the really good waiter or waitress at a restaurant who's, who's there for you. Like, they're there to help. What do you need? I am here to help you have what you need. Ketchup, on it. Water, I got it. A refill, I got it again. You know, just gladly looking for the needs of another. Um, there's, a, there's a mindset that goes with that. I can imagine that, um, well, I don't know. I, I can imagine that when a waiter gets home, he probably doesn't want to make dinner and serve that to the family. You know, like, I'm good. I'm done with this. You know, in fact, let's go to a restaurant <laughs> where I can sit down and tell someone else to get my ketchup for me, right? But coming into work, there's a mindset that they have to put on. If they're going to be great at it, they're going to be good at it. There's a mindset. All right. I'm going to lay aside my agenda. I've got things to do. That's not why I'm here. I'm here 
to make sure that their experience is the best it possibly can be. And so, and so there's, a, there's a mindset that they are seeking to put on. And, and I want to ask you, where in your life do you, do you purposely, consciously adopt the mindset of a servant? Because I don't think you wake up with it. Just guessing. Right? <laughs> we weren't born with it. Some, it does seem, were born with a little bit of a more a, a, a kind of attention to these things and a, a gifting in this way, but, but we were all born selfish. So where are you purposely taking the time to put on the mindset of a servant? You know, I think of my time in the Navy and just the difference it could be like cutting the grass in the backyard on a Saturday afternoon, kids running around, you know, there's a kind of relaxedness, family feel to that, which is just awesome and wonderful and, you know, family dynamic, whatever. But then, like, come Monday morning, you start putting your uniform on. It's like, okay, I have a job to do. I have a role to assume. There, there's, there's something now that I, I have to step into this. This is not about just drifting along like I could do on a Saturday can't drift along here. I, I've got to be ready to engage with the, the, the mission that I'm on. I think military, the military is really on to something with the uniform from that perspective. Um, when do you put on the uniform of a servant? May I suggest that you put that on consciously and deliberately as you go into your own home? And let me suggest that that will be the hardest place to put it on. Uh, probably because, yeah, because we know the weaknesses of those we're serving in our own home. We know the failures and the sin of those in our own home, and that can make it harder to serve. In fact, it does make it harder to serve, right? But boy, if we learn it there, we're going to find that we're postured to serve far beyond there. So learn there, but let me also just suggest your drive to church as an opportunity to engage with the Lord and, so to speak, put the uniform on. Lord, I'm not coming to church for me. Listen, if, if, you're, if you're new to the faith, if you, if you don't know the Lord, I'm so glad that you're here. Pray that the Lord speaks to you through this, that you see amongst you here something of the servant nature of Jesus in the way that we serve each other here. You know, when first start coming to church after you're saved you come for yourself i need the i need the food i'm coming to the table i'm hungry i want to hear god's word i want to worship yes 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 and i hope that doesn't change i hope that those desires are still there that we come eagerly expectantly to god's word that we come eager to worship but i hope we come for each other because christian maturity looks like i'm coming to church to be a servant. I want to wear this mindset as I come. So the first thing that we're talking about here is servants of Christ. Yet, as I've talked about it, all I've really talked about is the fact that we're to serve one another. You see what I mean? Like we're servants of Christ, serving horizontally. But I want to point to that vertical component for a second and to say that we are servants 
of Christ. Which means that, I don't know, moms, dads, as, as you seek to serve your kids and they respond selfishly, not that your kids would ever do that. But if they did, respond to your service giving your life away to them, selfishly, of all things. You know? you, the, the quality of your service is not judged by those you are serving. It's not judged by your kids. You seek to serve your spouse in a certain way, and they don't even notice that you did it. The quality of your service is not determined by your spouse. You seek to serve somebody at church, and of all things, they get upset with you for what you said to them, taking it the wrong way. Praise God that the quality of your service is not determined by the person you're serving because we are servants of Christ. We have one Lord and one Master and one Judge who judges the quality of our servants' service. So number one, we are servants of Christ. And number two, we are stewards of the gospel. Stewards of the gospel. So look again at verses one and two. This is how one should regard us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. All right, so there's a couple things in here. Stewards. This is not a word we use very much, but Let's think of it like this. There's a business with a lot of money, and the business appoints a treasurer to oversee that money. So that person has a stewardship over that money. It's not theirs, but they are responsible for it. That's the, that's the idea of being a steward. So you, you put a steward over something which isn't theirs, but they're over it on behalf of someone else that, that really owns it. So we are stewards of Paul says, the mysteries of God. Now, I just want to help you with a, a Pauline phrase, a phrase that Paul uses, the mysteries of God. I think every time he uses it, certainly every time he uses it in 1 Corinthians, this is what he's talking about. The fact that God's plan for salvation was hidden for millennia. The prophets looked ahead, but they didn't quite get it. They kind of could look down the road, you know, like in Isaiah 53. Okay, the servant's going to come. He's going to suffer. But yeah, don't know who that's going to be or exactly when that's going to be. You know, so they're looking up ahead. And God's plan for the salvation of all of mankind was a mystery that was then revealed in Christ. So Paul was still at this stage in time where that had just happened. Jesus had just come. And so he speaks of the mysteries of God as those, well, as the gospel. It is the truths that were long time hidden that had recently been revealed. It's a, it's a mystery no longer kind of a mystery. So shorthand, when you read mysteries of God, think the gospel, because that's what Paul means when he says it, okay? So he's saying, we are stewards of these ancient truths that God had kept hidden until right now. We are to be thought of, and we are to be stewards of the gospel of Christ. So what does that mean? Well, two things come to my mind when I think of stewards. 
The first is that the steward is given something. What were we given? The gospel. Glory to God. What does this mean? It means that when we become uh, servants of Jesus, we don't, we don't do so to earn our place with God. We don't do so to earn God's favor towards us. We don't do so because we think God's displeased. So what can I do today to make him pleased? We do so first as recipients of the greatest news which has ever come to humanity that was hidden for so long and has now been revealed, the gospel of Jesus Christ. We are saved by grace through faith alone because of the work of Christ alone. We don't have to serve to get there. Glory to God. We are recipients of the gospel. So any ministry you do, don't do it out of guilt. You've, you've left gospel ground. Don't do it out of a sense of trying to earn something out of God or you've stepped again off of the ground of the gospel, off of the very stewardship that you're called to have. When we serve as believers, we serve as those who have been served. We know that our relationship to God does not depend on how we serve Him. It depends entirely on how He served us on the cross when He bore our sins away as far as the east is from the west and gave us His own righteousness. You know, normally, for a steward, you understand, this is pretty distinct. All right, if you're the steward for a business, don't do this, all right? The business has a million dollars, and you're like, well, they won't miss 10% of that. I can take a little bit of that for me. You know, that's not what stewards do, okay? Unless you're a steward of the gospel, and you get to partake in it. Glory to God. But don't worry, there's not, there's not like less for someone else. It's, still, it's all still there, and you get to share it with others, right? The stewards of the gospel were first recipients of the gospel. And then, though, we, we hold on to, keep safe, and seek to share that same gospel with others. To be a steward is to take care of something that was given to you. It's not to come up with something on your own. It's not to be creative and, 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 and design something on your own. It's to receive and then to give what you've received. So uh, here's a picture for being a steward of the gospel. The picture is a mailman. All right, And I, I don't know why. I, I have mailmen that come to my house, but I still think of that like 1950s thing where they've got the U.S. mail bag that they carry from door to door. And I know that's not really frequently, at least, how it's working. But let's picture that mailman, right? So the mailman comes to, comes to a certain residence, and somebody there has written a letter. The mailman's job is to receive the letter from that person. And then, having received it, to keep it safe. Not let it fall to the ground, fall between the seats. Forget about it. Just drop that bag of mail at home and move on with life. No, there's a job you've got to do, right? You're going to take that message, you're going to deliver it. But here's the other thing that is not for that mailman to do. Kind of open up that mail, read it, and say, you know, paragraph. 
in the mail. We're going to erase that paragraph. I'm not a fan of that piece of the mail. Or you know what? I said this. So I'm just going to add this at the bottom of the letter. Mailmen don't do this. And if perchance, right? It's not what mailmen are supposed to do. That's not what stewards do. Stewards of the gospel do. We receive from the Lord the gospel once for all delivered to the saints, recorded for all time in this book. We receive it and then we deliver it to those that need it. We don't forget about it, leave it down between the seats, leave it wherever it is, fail to deliver. We're called to deliver the mail, friends. To be a steward of the gospel is to be called to deliver the mail, to be delivering the message of the and to deliver it unaltered. And it is tempting to alter it. Oh, there's too much here about the judgment of God. Too much here about sin. Too much here about God's opposition to sin and the sinfulness of man. And sin doesn't sell too good. So let's erase some... Par- no. We are to deliver what has been given to us without subtraction and without addition as though we could somehow add to the best letter ever written, to the best news ever given. Any time we add to the gospel, it is subtraction by addition that we are doing. So we are to be stewards of the mysteries of God. Now, how does this apply in everyday life? Because I thought we were talking about serving. We are. We're talking about serving each other. But the servant's goal is, in all the ways they're serving, to make Christ known. Right? So parents, think, think of this. You, you, this applies when you're doing the laundry. Right? I, I'm, I'm about this. I'm seeking to be about this with joy. I'm seeking to be about this with gratitude in my heart to the Lord for the people I'm doing this for. I'm going to seek to do this with some excellence so that they know something of the care of God as I get this job done for them. I want them to know a little bit more of God's care for them through this simple act that I'm doing. There's a connection to the gospel, to the smallest piece of serving that every believer is called to. We, we serve one another, not just because the end is service, but the end is Christ. And we're trying to point to Christ and lift up Christ and in some ways incarnate Christ. To those who, you know, we just sang this wonderful song this morning that His goodness and mercy has followed us all the days of our lives. And if you've walked with the Lord for a while, your heart just explodes with, yes, that's so true, it does. There are some people that have never felt that. They've never known the goodness of God. They've never turned to Him. And it could be that your act of serving makes the gospel real. And they know something of the goodness of God, the mercy of God, the kindness of God to them. Serving moves the gospel forward. And so we're called to be servants of Christ and stewards of the gospel. Last point, number three, we are seen by God. Part of this pattern is that we are seen by God. Paul says, in verse 2, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. 
Okay, so there is going to be a, a finding of faithfulness. Someone's going to judge our serving. The question is, who is that going to be? So he says in verse 3, well, with me, it's a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. So Paul says very explicitly, those that we are serving are not our judge. They don't get to decide whether we did a good job or not. Now, that doesn't mean, friend, doesn't mean be arrogant as you serve. You know, here's your water. You know, you don't get to decide whether I'm a good servant or not. No, our intent, of course, is to do right by them, to do well by them. But what we're saying is we have one judge, and that is the Lord. And this is important to Paul because right now in this letter, part of the Corinthians don't like Paul. There's division in the church as to whether he should even be an apostle. And so he's basically saying, yeah, and you aren't my judge. I have a judge, and it is the Lord. And I'm called to this, and I'm going to keep walking. Whether you agree or not is secondary. This can be very powerful in your life in terms of a kind of confidence. You walk forward because the Lord has called you to be his servant. You are his servant before anyone else's. And then he says in the same verse, the end of verse 3, in fact, I do not even judge myself, for I'm not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Paul lets us right into his own mind. He says, you know, I don't spend a lot of time thinking, <laughs> judging how good of a job am I doing here or there, because I can mess that up. You ever feel like you're being too hard on yourself? Where, yeah, you're, you're kind of, you're, you're judging your own service like, man, I stink at everything. You ever worried that you're being too easy on yourself? And not seeing, same hand, and not seeing where there's actually sin underlying what's going on? Paul says, hey, I don't know anything against myself, but that doesn't mean I've got it right. Because I live in a fog like the rest of you. I can't see my own heart perfectly. I don't know perfectly if I'm doing a great job at serving or not, if I'm doing this entirely out of the right motive or not. Right now, things are murky. And so he says in verse 5, therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time. And he is correcting the Corinthians here. Y'all have been judging me way too much. Don't pronounce judgment before the time. Church, let's be careful in how we judge one another. I get to say this in a season in our church life of great unity and affection for each other where I don't see this as a problem. There are times, by the way, that we need to discern sin and need to take biblical action because of that sin. So this, it's not forbidding that there be some time for judgment. But let me just say, the spirit of the age we live in judges quickly. Have you noticed? This is the thing. This is where we're at. And, and please assume that you are affected by that. And that you've, you've been pushed in that direction. Because the spirit of the age is not charitable towards other people's weaknesses or failures. It's not assuming the best. It's not looking at others in the best light. The spirit of the age is tearing each other down 
deliberately misconstruing the facts, seizing on one little thing and creating an entire narrative around it for the purpose of destroying that person. That's the spirit of the age. That's what we're living in, biting and devouring each other. Let that, let that end like, like the tide at the doors of the church and let it not come in. For we are called to a charitable disposition to each other. One that is assuming the best of each other. One, is, one that is, in fact, willing to overlook the sins of each other and certainly to forbear with the weaknesses of each other as well. The more you serve, the more you will be glad that other people are not your judge at the end and that you're not your own judge at the end. You know? We have but one judge. The question is, is it good that the Lord is our judge at the end? Because what we've been talking about actually is imperfect motives and not seeing oh man, I've got, I've got some sin in here. I didn't realize I was serving for applause until nobody thanked me. And then I didn't like that. And I realized something about myself that I was serving for applause. You know, we, fact is, we don't see our own hearts very well. And it says in verse 5, second part, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. And I tremble when I read that. He's going to cut through the fog. He sees everything with perfect light. Perfect perception. He knows your heart. And he can look back, Rolodex style, to every act of serving with the motives well seen and known. How much of my sin is intermingled in my serving? How much selfishness with the acts that I seek to do? And God is the one who sees. That's what verse 5 says, but you'll notice I stopped reading before the end. The end of verse 5 is marvelous and unexpected because it says, then each one will receive his commendation from God. Why was I expecting judgment? I was expecting judgment because I know my sin. And I was expecting that also because like you, I had forgotten the gospel. Christ takes away our sin, friend. All of it forever. And so when we come before the Lord on that day, Here's what God says he will give, remarkably, commendation to his servants. He sees all things. He knows all things. There will be acts for which you are not commended, simply forgiven. And there will be other acts that you walk through imperfectly. And the imperfect imperfections are removed. But what remains, God will commend you for. Glory to God. How hopeful is that? It means you can get about serving right now as an imperfect person. You don't have to wait to be perfect to start serving, which is really good. <laughs> That's really good. 
or we'd be waiting a while, right? We don't have to wait because God at the end is going to commend those who have been servants of Christ and stewards of the gospel. This is remarkable of his grace. It's remarkable. He takes our sin away. And then, like, how much of this is you, right? Like, think, think of this, right? Like, we bring our sin to the table, okay? He takes that away. But on the last day, he's going to commend us for what we did, right? For what we did with the opportunity that he put in our path, the energy we used to do it, which he gave to us, using the gifts to serve others, which, oh yeah, those were from him as well, um, with the heart inclination to serve others. Oh, wait, that was from God. Oh, my goodness. He gives us the gift of serving each other and then commends us for doing it. Glory to God. <laughs> Glory to God. And so that's why at the end of the day, we cast our crowns before him and say, you are the only one worthy of praise. You are the only one worthy. You are the servant. Anything I did is just, just a reflection of who you are and what you've done. Friend, your God sees. Your God sees what you're doing. Moms at home, your God sees what you're doing. He does not forget. He weighs every tear, remembers every sorrow, counts every bit of suffering that you walk through as you're serving someone else. He sees and the day is coming that he promises when he will commend glory to God. Let us take hope in that future that God has promised to us.